0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my conversation is with Kate Mann, an assistant professor of philosophy at Cornell University. As a feminist and moral philosopher, Mann examines an idea that has been inadequately addressed in her book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, published by Oxford University Press. She argues that misogyny is on the wane as a working concept and situates her analysis in recent news stories and events. She offers a definition that is not psychological, but rather as a system of social control. Man brings a fresh analysis to our understanding of misogyny and the related term sexism. Misogyny is selective because it targets those who fail to uphold the patriarchal standards of a woman's place in a masculine world and works as the policing and enforcement branch of the ideology of sexism. Women caught in asymmetrical moral support roles are expected to offer respect, deference, admiration, and gratitude to favorably situated men and provide especially elite men with comfort, care, and sexual and emotional labor in many different situations. Misogyny shows up in conversation, office politics, and the dispensation of favors flowing from a man's relative status, wealth, or celebrity. Rewards come to those who comply. In this scenario, women act as human givers rather than full and equal human beings. Men's book is one for the moment. Here is my conversation with Kate Mann. Now let me introduce you to the author, Kate Mann. Hello, Kate.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. So pleased to have you on this podcast as your book speaks very loud and clear to the present moment in in gender relations. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Down Girl.
1: Oh, sure. Um, So I am an assistant professor of philosophy at um, the Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University, and I am originally Australian. I... um, did my undergraduate degree at Melbourne and then went to MIT for graduate school, where I studied with um, Sally Haslanger, who I'm a, a big fan of um, and who some of your listeners may, um, may be familiar with her work. And um, yeah, then I was at Harvard for a couple of years at the Society of Fellows as a junior fellow. And I've been at Cornell now since 2013. So I I came to write the book actually after my first year of teaching here at Cornell Um, and the event that was sort of the immediate impetus for writing it was the Isle of Vista killing by a man named Elliot Roger on May 23rd, 2014. So I'd just wrapped up my first year of teaching and this uh, young man was targeting and intending to uh, kill an entire sorority house full of um, young women, female students at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So the fact that I was teaching and trying to think through some of the some of the ways in which I could potentially shortchange my female students because of things like implicit bias um, and Also just thinking about their vulnerability to sexual assault on campus, Um, yeah, for all of those reasons, those events were very, um, they were very salient to me and horrifying as was the subsequent media denialism about the idea that this could be misogyny. So that's sort of the history of the book.
0: Okay, let me ask you a question. Uh did you, did this also come out of your own personal experience, not just with your students, but your own private personal experience? Because I know you're, you're relatively young and so, and you're just starting off on a career in philosophy. Have you experienced some of this in your own environments?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think the most probably formative thing for me in this respect was I went to boys school in my final two years of high school um, the first year that it integrated and went co-ed so it was um yeah hundreds of boys maybe I think probably 500 or something um and three girls wow yeah that's
0: that's a pretty pretty amazing odds there
1: yeah it was um and yeah I think that that you know it was sort of an interesting mixture of experiences, which I think i think it definitely um it definitely guided me to philosophy actually because the i mean so much of what happened was sort of horrifying and and you know left me pretty shattered really and and frozen and in all of the sort of expectable ways but um i think after that i had some sort of desire to enter male dominated spaces and not feel like i was just going to die um which was sort of the phenomenology socially of being um at that school at least you know at least for a certain periods of time for those two years so yeah i think that um there's some been something actually relatively healing about being in philosophy which is very white male dominated and has a lot of problems and a lot of misogyny which which I don't want to underestimate by any means but I've survived (laughs) so that's you know I that feels like it's um yeah something of a contrast to feeling just much less support and more threatened when I was younger
0: now you are a You are a a moral philosopher, uh, is how you uh, describe yourself. So why is this a moral issue, and why is philosophy involved in this? We we tend to think of philosophy very differently from the way you're presenting it in this book. So can you tell me uh, a little bit about moral philosophy and why this is moral philosophy?
1: Yeah, um, I really appreciate that question because I think I come at – my discipline a bit differently than a lot of its practitioners. Um, so one question in moral philosophy that's very important is what we ought to do about this or about that, um, what we ought to do about poverty, say, or whether we ought to eat meat. Um, and I think those are often the most salient and familiar sorts of examples of questions asked by ethicists, um, you know, at least in my milieu. But I think there is um, an equally important set of questions which um, come at it from the other, from another angle, and ask, um, what is it not the case that we ought to do that we may have been raised to think that we um, we ought to do indeed, and what are some of the implicit shoulds? which often come in the form of social norms of a kind of implicitly moralised nature that may be um, making us unfree. And, um, you know, in particular in this context may may maybe making um, either women in general or particular groups of women our lives much less good than they otherwise would be. Sometimes, um, you know, with uh benefits to dominant men and sometimes not, so that's the kind of um that's the perspective as a moral philosopher that I think I'm employing here primarily in the book looking at these ties that falsely bind or illicitly bind this false sense of moral obligation say to be loyal to a dominant man who has a history of serial sexual predation say
0: so there's in more Yes. In and and, and moral norms, there's a lot of naturalizing, where we say this is the way it is, not just what ought to be, but also the way it is. And uh, there's a, a lot of attempt to uh, create, uh, we can create a lot of false guilt.
1: Yes. And in a way, that often um, comes via the principle or implies can, and it's contrapositive, where if you um, just negate um, the consequent of that conditional and say, well, it can't be otherwise, then you can't say, um, you know, flipping this whole thing on its head, it's not the case that it ought to be otherwise. So if things right. are just naturally a certain way, then you can't really protest them. And that's just means like certain kinds of sexist myths and rumors that men and women just are mutually exclusive and exhaustive categories of persons, which is false of um of course, and that they have different proclivities, interests, appetites and talents, which is again false, that will rule out certain kinds of demands for things to be vastly different socially, because it's just, you know, it's a defunct demand. If it's not the case, um, you know, that it can be otherwise, then we don't get to say it ought to be.
0: Yeah, and we also have some questionable social scientific uh, work that's done that sort of tries to to reassert differences that are uh, questionable. You know, this is the way men act on a date, and this is the way women should or do act on a date that reinforces – those norms so it's sort of like almost like the race science of the 19th century but uh, uh, so let me ask you a question let's go on to to the to the topic of your book which is misogyny so w- what is it um, I, because I think we all kind of know what it is but I think we sometimes lose the meaning of words and especially since uh, I did a Google search and in 1960s, it began to really show up and really increase the word misogyny. Increased in use up to the 1990s, and then it began a decline. And so, you know, it's a word that we haven't heard very much now. Now, in the last you know few months, we have, but for years there, there were it was really kind of out of out of favor. So, what is it, and why has it gone out? Of, why was it a a waning working concept that we could actually use?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I think since about 2012, it's really, you can see if you look at the Google Ngram um, trend line, it spiked um, and is now kind of at an all-time high in terms of usage. Um, So I think it's a word that has emerged in, um, you know, popular discourse as a common... um, and sort of useful concept pretty recently. Um, It's kind of got an interesting history as a word. So um, it was coined by, um, uh, I guess, um, it was around 1615, I think. So at any rate, early uh, 17th century feminists who were pushing back against um, Joseph Swetnam, who was this English pamphleteer who produced this um, screed against idle, lewd, inconstant and froward, i.e. angry women. And these anonymous English um, feminists decided to sort of appropriate the, um, the ancient Greek roots to get a kind of um, a term with some gravitas to label this guy with. So that there are just a few fragments of um, related words in texts um, in ancient Greek, but a they seem to be slightly different usages and b um, I think there's only two occurrences that um, that are um, currently recognized so really it's an English word and Yeah, I think that there have been certain points in our history where its connotations and its potential to label sheer hostility toward women has made it kind of unpopular. Um, And I think, you know, my hunch is hostility needs to rise to a certain level um, together with that feminist consciousness that, that first coined the term both need to rise simultaneously to a certain level in order for it to be, um, you know, in common parlance. So in a way it's a word that um, we expect to see, I think, popping up when there's backlash to feminist progress.
0: Yeah, because it seems like you know around 2000 when it wasn't being used very much, that there was an assumption that women were making great strides in all in all professions. So we don't really need this word because things women are really getting a lot of equality. But I, like you said, once uh, there's an incident or something happens, that kind of r- reminds everybody that things are not as equal as think. Uh, this word is comes out again. Now one thing that you do is you are trying to get away from the idea of misogyny as just an individual psychological problem. And and you're trying to give it a systemic sort of, uh, um, residence. So talk about.
1: Yeah. My definition just, sorry, just to return for one sec. That's really interesting. I didn't know it was sort of, um, at it's Nadir in 2000. That was the year after I graduated high school. And, um, Yeah, it was a word that was completely unavailable, as in I don't think it had even occurred to me that what I was facing might be misogyny um, back then. But my definition of it is meant to get at, um, well, it's meant to define it as primarily a property of social systems or environments as a whole. And in terms of what girls and women in that environment face, um, which, you know, will have a hostile flavour and serve to police and enforce patriarchal norms and expectations. So often that will have the form of punishing and expressing resentment and other sorts of hostile attitudes towards women who in some way transgress against the patriarchal order whether that's by just being in a male-dominated space or whether that's by playing a role that's traditionally reserved for men or refusing to play a role that he typically feels entitled to a woman or girl in that kind of service position.
0: So how is this different from sexism? Because you still hear the word sexism or sexist. Uh, how is it different?
1: Yeah, so I think of misogyny as kind of the police force of a patriarchal order, law enforcement branch, and sexism relating back to what we were talking about um, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, um, sexism serves to naturalize and rationalize and justify a patriarchal order. So sexism is, if you will, a theory of why gender roles and norms just make good sense. And often that takes the form of, this is just the way men and women are, either intrinsically for each and every man and woman, or even on average, such that it doesn't really make sense to worry if, say, women are underrepresented in philosophy because men just naturally like it more which is, I think, <laughs> very likely um, either false or um, represents a contentious claim we couldn't possibly know yet because we have no control group for a non-patriarchal society, um, you know, depending on exactly how it's formulated. And often these claims are just implausible given um, in some cases, say in, in math, where women have been making huge um, Strides in proportion to opportunity anyway, so okay so
0: so how is your definition or your understanding of misogyny differ from the work that 's been done by feminist theorists and philosophers because it seems like um they're not using those that term that much. why
1: well, misogyny had very little explicit theorizing from feminist philosophers in my tradition in philosophy, which is analytic, um, you know, I didn't find much work across the board about it. And I think that that's because it it did fall out of favour. And a lot of the work that um, I've seen myself as just joining the dots between different, um, you know, concepts and notions and Phenomena that have been really well theorized by feminist philosophers, like sexual objectification and oppression, and sexism has quite a bit of theorizing. And um, you know, there's been a lot of very good work, um, a ton of it really, on um, in feminist philosophy of language that brings out. ways in which language can be both objectifying and subordinating and um, degrading in various ways that both reflect and constitute social norms that of a gendered kind. Anyway, so all told, this is not to say that by any means there isn't um, tons of relevant related work in the vicinity that I'm drawing on, but I think just because of its recency of coming to um to be a term that was in wide usage yeah misogyny just didn't have a lot of um a lot of explicit theorizing that defined it um so I kind of tried to to come up with a theory that was like the one I was looking for when I um first wanted to write about the Isla Vista killings I I looked for a definition and couldn't find it one that fit um, the usage pattern of feminists.
0: Now, you you use a lot of examples in your book, like the Elliot Rogers and the Alice Vista killings, and to uh, the first uh, Donald Trump's first divorce from Ivana. You use a lot of real, you know, you use a Rush Limbaugh, and you use a lot of real examples. But how does misogyny work or show up in everyday interactions? Things that aren't quite not quite as extreme or as public.
1: Yeah. um... So I think, and this is something that comes out at the end of the book, I think it often takes the form of being slightly taken aback or just showing slight, often subtle, disgust reactions to um, non-conforming women, which then get rationalised because, you know, when you have an inchoate sort of, ugh, reaction to someone doing something, it's often um, tempting to think, well, there must be something a bit off about them. Like maybe they're somehow, um, you know, their behavior is kind of inappropriate somehow or they're not fully responsible and they're, you know, showing a lack of care somehow or, or whatever it is. Um, and that's where I think we get these superficially gender neutral criticisms of women Um, that involve being, yeah, a little taken aback, a little hostile, that don't have the sort of brazen and shameless quality of um, the misogyny evinced by Donald Trump, say, they have a much much more plausible deniability. But it's why, say, you know, like a a female job candidate in philosophy might have to navigate between seeming like, um, you know, a bad philosopher and not being incisive enough, versus um, a bad woman hence person in being too abrasive
0: yes so and, and men are never judged to be a, a gr- aggressive or abrasive they're they're just assertive they're they're yeah they're ambitious which is a good thing
1: well I think they sometimes are and I, I mean I think it differs too for men of color I think there are um, different you know ways in which both race and class probably intersect with with this, quite um, you know, in in quite subtle ways, but I do think that the comparison I like to draw is between men and women in the same um, with the same intersecting social factors. Such that I think if you compare, say, um, you know, a white man and a white woman, he will certainly be held um, to much lower standards in terms of interpersonal civility um, before he's judged abrasive, all else being equal. So that's like a very hedged way of putting it, but.
0: No, I understand. So, so when, when, so do some men benefit more than others? This is kind of relative, right? It depends on the man's, uh, position of power, relative position of power in society.
1: I think it, it definitely, um, you know, there's, a, it, that's a particularly good question because I think it, It benefits white men, um, you know, just vastly more in general. So I think misogyny has to be seen as a system of law enforcement that works within, in this context, a white supremacist heteropatriarchy. So it enforces the sort of heteropatriarchal elements of um, what's also a white supremacist um, system. And because of that, I think what you often find is and this is important i think in understanding white women's complicity in certain forms of misogyny you find these powerful white men who especially if they're wealthy and um you know and non-disabled and um you know i should make explicit um cis and het before getting into the rest of the um you know example that um You know, you mentioned someone like Donald Trump in relation to his first wife, Ivana. Someone like that has pretty well, you know, in some cases, um, breathtaking amounts of legal, moral and social impunity for crimes they commit. Um, So when you get someone in that kind of position who's what I call hyper-privileged, they'll get enormous benefits both in the form of women um, who are deferential to them and who play a subordinate role and in the context of intimate relationships due to the kind of um, racist forces that see white men in that position disproportionately partnering with white women, um, yeah, you will see kind of... uh, a class of white women who play very deferential and subordinate social roles with respect to those powerful men, but pay a very hefty price if they err with respect to his will. So that's what I think my introduction is designed to show—to—to um, to get at both the um, the degree to which. White men really benefit from this, and also the extent to which white women are incentivized within the context, like the one I've just defined, um, not to rock the boat, not to, um, you know, step out of line.
0: Now, there is there is there we're talking here about a certain kind of what you talk about, an expectation of an asymmetrical moral support roles for women, that there are expectations placed on women in terms of how much support they are supposed to offer certain men. Uh, But I was wondering if there is also a reverse expectation on men. Uh, Do we have an expectation of men that women do not have? Or do they get a free ride? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, I certainly think there there are some norms and expectations, um, you know, like the most obvious one traditionally is the breadwinner role. Um, but in in some ways, those um, asymmetrical expectations are breaking down, and in other ways, sometimes what you find is a sort of violent lashing out or punching down when he's unable to fulfill those um, kinds of of roles. You, you don't tend to find women committing domestic violence because their man isn't a good provider, even if they subscribe to those sorts of defunct gender norms. What you find is the opposite, actually, that if he can't fulfill the sort of tenets of traditional masculinity, which um, compromises his pride in certain ways, um, you know, that tends to be, um, you know, a predictor for domestic violence um, of certain kinds committed by him rather than her.
0: So basically, are we saying also, too, that uh, what, is expected of, have, what is expected of women has not really changed, even though on the surface, you know, women are, are working more and outside the home and there's, they're having careers and they're advancing uh, on the surface – But fundamentally, they still they can do that, but they still have to maintain a certain position, a deference, an attitude of deference.
1: Yeah, I think the the interpersonal relations um, have changed in terms of what's permitted and expected, much less than one would hope and maybe expect on the surface. So, you know, I should say that often when I talk about what's Possible or permissible or tolerated, you know. I'm not making predictions about how, um, you know, most, let alone all, relationships of the relevant kind go, or how it always plays out. I think um, often these claims are best read as if he's not constrained by moral conscience or principle or other social messages that to be sure can be there, Um, you know, there are obviously, you know, men who have their feminist consciousness raised and, um, you know, don't subscribe to, um, you know, or have conflicting views, but who, um, you know, are um, pretty woke to use like a um, term I'm kind of fond of here. But I think there's a, just a social permission there which means that if those various constraints and forms of you know, consciousness raising and education aren't there, then things can go very wrong in this direction, um, particularly, again, when it's someone who's um, a man who's not subject to oppressive social forces because he's a man of color in a white supremacy. Um, When he's a man who forces sort of, um, you can think of them, um, you know, roughly as wanting to keep him on top of the world, it's very hard to send him down. Well,
0: what it seems to me like is that the, the liberal feminist project has made quite a few advances, but the radical feminist project, which was always from the very beginning really aimed at culture and the relationships, you know, the the, the interpersonal relation between men and women. That's the that's the project that has not advanced as far as you know the liberal project. You know, uh, that's what I that's that's my my take on this. But anyway, let me ask you about. Do women, how do women support women themselves or enable misogyny? Is there some sort of element of interdependence or enabling or, you know, because I think women have, I think women also, again, I'm not, this is not about blaming the victim, but understanding that women do have a certain responsibility.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. A kind of forward-looking responsibility while understanding how hard it is to be fully resistant to these forces because, you know, they're so strong and the consequences of stepping out of line are so high. And the thing is, misogyny gives women options. So when, you know, I roll my eyes at the idea that, you know, of the um, old saw that feminism is all about choice, well, not really because misogyny sorts women into good women and bad women roughly speaking, whereas sexism tends to sort men from women um, according to natural capacities. But to go back to misogyny sorting bad women and good women, there are huge incentives to present yourself and, in fact, make yourself into a a good woman, a quote-unquote good woman by the lights of patriarchal ideology. And that can be very sort of tempting and seductive and deceptive um, it can mean being oriented to male writers or philosophers. It can mean putting up with mistreatment um, both of yourself and also other women by just always kind of looking on the bright side and siding with him over the women who testify against him or even just, you know, show reservations about the way he's proceeded. Um So, I think there are all sorts of temptations that it would be wrong, just as you say, to blame the victim, because really, you know, there is a lot of victimization here. But it also has to be recognized that, um, you know, particularly when it comes to white women, we have often victims of misogyny who are also effectively oppressing more vulnerable women, say women of color, um, in ways that, really call for being corrected going forward.
0: You know, it's the old idea that, you know, women uh, women who gain particular positions of power, uh, you know, the idea that they don't help other women, you know, whether that's true or not. But the idea that uh, women who are in positions of power may be a little smug about their power and begin to say, uh, well, these other women aren't where I am because You know,
1: whatever you could list, they're bad in some like whatever way, they're just not that good, or they're they have only themselves to blame in some spurious for spurious, you know, insert spurious explanation.
0: So, yeah, so basically, they become they're special,
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's sort of another aspect of it, too, though, which is I do think women complain about women not supporting. Um, other women, you know, particularly when women are looking for mentorship or or similar. But I also think often those complaints, you know, have some validity, but it's also true that men are not called upon to support women nearly enough. So when I talk about those asymmetrical obligations, I think a large part of what needs to be corrected isn't, you know, um, the idea that we approve of and sometimes um, have strong norms in favor of giving and being, you know, very respectful without being deferential or being, um, you know, careful to not hurt others' feelings and offering concrete material as well as moral support. It's just that those norms should apply regardless of gender. And so you get yeah, you get so few calls for men to be not just good fathers, but if they're in het or so-called straight relationships, like what about being a supportive husband or partner? Like that just does like I just can't find those articles, but they should be there.
0: Okay, so there's a there's an issue that you talk about that women engage in which was a, I thought was very interesting the self gaslighting. Can you talk a little bit about that? How does that work? Because you give some examples uh, with uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein and then also, uh, I think, uh, yeah, Ivana Trump and some other women.
1: Uh, yeah. So I think you might be referring to Steve Bannon. Bannon. And That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, right. right. Just because Weinstein wasn't yet on the radar. Exactly. So that would have been truly prescient on my part, so I don't want to take credit if it's not due. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, but, I mean, for that matter, Weinstein's victims often show this same pattern, and I think Selma Hayek showed a really, her op-ed about this, um, which was published, you know, just last week um, at the time we're having this conversation. I found that a really powerful testament to how that can happen where, you have a powerful man he's been very abusive and if a woman feels you know very disempowered in that role which is um you know it's kind of by hypothesis pretty normal to feel that way given that the very moves he makes are expressive of you know domination and um you know their power moves and so feeling powerful with regard to him is going to not be the default so i think what can happen is either after coming forward and telling your story or not um there are these cases where women just convince themselves that he's forgivable in the case of hayek um that you know she convinced herself she'd forgiven him and then realize that wasn't the case, especially since, you know, he never apologised to her, at least in anything like a full way. So, you know, it's hard to see how there could be a, a forgiveness without some, you know, interpersonal reparation of a kind that expressed recognition. But, yeah, you also get women who tell their stories in this very, um, you know, impressively strong way and talk about, in the case of Andy Puzda's ex-wife, Lisa, she talked about how the patriarchal forces were um, making this very difficult, but she had to stand strong and do this for herself. And then you find these women like totally eating their words years later and coming out and saying with, you know, certainly what looks like, um, not just sincerity, but, um, just conviction he did nothing wrong he was a good husband he was not abusive
0: and you know this happens all the time in uh domestic abuse cases where women women will complain you know will call the police it being hit the police shows up and the woman says oh it's okay we got you know we patched it up there's not a problem but she's got a black eye so so uh, so now they're, you know, we're trying to move away from just listening and uh, not just uh, using the women's testimony because she may waffle on that.
1: I think evidence-based cases, um, your so-called purely evidence-based cases um, for the crime of strangulation are being pushed by prosecutors because it's just so hard to get women to testify consistently about what happened. And I think... You know, that's a very important point about not taking women's testimony seriously. Um, you know, when we say we should take her seriously, we're often implicitly assuming that we mean in context where she's saying something that goes against the patriarchal grain. And if so, yeah, that- then I agree. But women so gaslit, like, often they're going to deny that there was a problem, in which case I don't give you know, any more credence to her testimony than seems warranted by the overall evidence. So if she says he's a great guy, I think, well, okay, you have a black eye, I'll reserve judgment.
0: Well, there is a um, there was a YouTube video uh, showing clips from movies, from the earliest movies that we've had in the 20th century, uh, where men spanked, strangled, did all kinds of stuff for on women's bodies as sort of just good humor. Okay. Yes. It's very interesting. uh, Set of clips and it's, and and people laughed, people didn't think anything about it. It was like, Oh, this is the way it is men, you know, doing all kinds of things to women as sort of just a humorous thing. And, uh, that's, that's how ingrained this is. If I find that I'm going to get that to you. Uh, but the thing about it that uh, with the Weinstein case, since we're now up to this present moment, uh, what I've already seen—I don't know if you've already seen it, but I have—the the, what you call empathy, which is you know we're we are we're beginning to see. Oh, we've gone far enough with this. You know, we need to cut it out. I even had a, I saw a journalist that basically say a woman basically said, okay, we need to get to reconciliation. We need to reconcile. And I'm
1: going really that quick. (sighs) Yeah. I had the same thing. Not two days ago. I just, my jaw just dropped. It was like, it was, yeah, that sort of hurry to, okay, well we've heard, we've heard all the stories. It's like, no, (laughs) we're just beginning. And I think It just does such a disservice in the face of what does seem to me, you know, a really important and sort of structurally anomalous, um, kind of brilliant moment that's been ushered in under the Me Too hashtag. In large part because Tarana Burke's phrase has that kind of, it's, it's brilliant because it gets at a narrative which centers on the self for a moment and then it passes the baton on and says, okay, me, but this is not unique. You know, what about you? And Hey, it turns out that as many of us have long appreciated if we've been working in this area, but have not had, um, you know, the the wherewithal to kind of show definitively, um, this is so prevalent that, you know, many, if not most women, you know, as well as some men and a lot of non-binary folks have a Me Too story or, you know, or several or dozens. And so I think the whole question of well, what about him, this empathy and excessive sympathy for the bright futures that might be spoiled by recognizing core moral truths, together with this, okay, how do we move forward from here? Like, nah, premature.
0: No, it's well, it also has to do with the fact that I think a lot of people think this is like something new that just happened, you know, and we'll get over it instead of really, it's not just one event, this is a his, this is historical. This has been, yeah, this has been going on for centuries and centuries. This is not like oh, we're just having a moment here. And then, of course, people having explanations like, well, this is because of feminism. This is because of the sexual revolution. This is because, you know, women have entered the workplace. Maybe if they stayed out of the workplace, we wouldn't have this problem.
1: (laughs) That's an amazingly victim blaming. Really, that's that's the issue. And not, you know, I mean, if for that matter, if like men didn't live in women's houses, then there would (laughs) be yeah, I mean, that's... And, you know, this this
0: this was, you know, these th- these ideas were used, why women should be out of, not be in the military. Because if you put women in the military, you're going to be, you're, you're subjecting them to being, you know, sexually abused or assaulted or whatever, because men are men. So let's keep women out instead of saying, what wait a minute, why don't you ask the men to change?
1: Yeah, it's really egregious. And it's, you know, it's, the thing is, in some ways, it's been such a good moment for my book to come out But in another way, it's just been that all the other moments were bad. Like I, you know, I joked sort of um, sardonically in the conclusion of my book that I had a much easier time getting people interested in this, to me, very minor topic that I wrote on, namely trigger warnings in pedagogy, I think. You know, I wrote like a New York Times piece just saying why I use them in context where I teach you know say sexual assault, which I teach you know quite um regularly. I teach um you know stuff that you know for students who've been raped sometimes recently to my knowledge, I, I just feel like you know an irresponsible person and Unkind, just sort of throwing that material in their faces rather than saying, "Hey, heads up, this will be on the menu for discussion, so they can prepare themselves." And often are very grateful that we are talking about it because avoidance isn't isn't the purpose. Um, it's you know preparation. Anyway, that was all I had to say about it. But I got so much more interest in that than misogyny up until. Um, yeah, like the book came out at the right time. But it's worth emphasizing people have been so oblivious to this phenomenon and so um, reluctant to see what's always been happening that I think we need to emphasize that this is coming out. It's not that it's just this, you know, trend thing. It's just telling truths that there's been, you know, a long and weighty silence around.
0: It also seems that masculinity, in a way, is fragile. And, you know, men have been in in a state of crisis forever. There's always a male crisis of some sort, okay, whether, you know, whatever, women are working, women are, you know, they're going off to war, and there's the feminist movement. There's always, some after the Civil War, every every decade has a new male crisis. So are men that fragile? Is there sort of a a master slave dialect going on here when, where where men need women uh, to be subservient or somehow beneath them in order for them to feel masculine.
1: Yeah. There, you know, there is something very master slave about a particular dynamic that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently where, I think there's a certain kind of fragile masculinity that is very Trump-like, actually, that constantly wants to win, but with the emphasis both on winning and constantly. So basically, he wants guarantees that he can't have. So he wants to win, so that means there has to be a real possibility of losing, for it to be a genuine game or a genuine argument say with a woman or a genuine tussle for like her consent you know the chase as they say in dating perniciously but on the other hand he wants guarantees that he won't lose the argument or have have to face rejection or um you know be humiliated in some way that involves her saying no to him or or clashing with his will so he both like will set things up i think often via gaslighting so she won't say no and she won't disagree and she won't withhold consent but he still has this precarious necessarily precarious because it's fake sense of being a winner or you know or conquering her
0: like you conquer land you conquer women It sort of uh, kind of goes together doesn't it in the history of war. Now, let me ask you, how much of breaking the power of misogyny depends on women becoming really conscious of it? I think a lot of women don't are not aware because it's, it's so naturalized. It's so much in the water that we don't even see it a lot of time. And, and how do we confront it? How do we, uh, what does a refusal of misogyny look like?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it will depend on women to just resist the false obligations placed on us and with it shrug off some of the guilt or shame or um you know r- related forms of moralizing that accompany just refusing to toe the patriarchal line. Part of it too I think will be reorienting not to sources of white male authority but listening to other women and you know for white women like me reorienting to women of color in particular in terms of creative voices who you know just by in virtue of the kinds of social forces we're subject to both you know culturally and in education, we you know we just will have missed a lot of the best you know stuffed and the most interesting, Um, material that, you know, creatively and politically will help us muster resistance. Um, So I think my book is much less about sort of, um, you know, telling men not to do this or that because in as much as, you know, a man is really committed to um, certain kinds of misogynistic behaviour, either he's not going to want to hear it from me or he'll hear it from me, but then never apply it to his own actions, you know. And that's true, unfortunately, of many sort of woke-sounding misogynists who can say all the right things, but they never, you know, they're never able to, you know, face shame and see what they do as domineering.
0: You know, the other side of this is that I've 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 known many women, uh, professional women, who have attained incredible amounts of success professionally, financially you know, in every kind of independence you can imagine. However, when it comes to the interpersonal, intimate relationships with men, they fall into this thing where they don't speak up and they become, you know, victims of certain, certain kinds of uh, misogyny that they don't recognize because they think it's just the way men and women relate to each other in interpersonal relationships, but if you look at the woman from the outside, she looks great. She's very successful. But there, then this is why I said that the work of liberal feminism has has been great. But the work of cultural feminism, of radical feminism, has not been completed. We're not. We haven't even touched it. And I'm kind of wondering about girls here too. Uh, how do we train girls from a very young age to be? You know, pleasing.
1: Yeah, no, that's it's a really interesting distinction. I mean, I've never identified as a liberal feminist, but that's really nicely brought out my sort of problem with liberal feminism and um, you know my my sympathy with um, you know certain kinds of voices. Um, you know, like Andrea Dworkin, for me, is a huge inspiration. Um, I mean, you know, there are fair criticisms of her work, like it not being intersectional enough, which is is really important. But, you know, the stuff that is, um, you know, still either applicable or adaptable with modifications, you know, to sort of um, update it in those ways, like really, really resonates. And I think there's been a lot of fear on the part of women that, it won't be pleasing to draw attention to some of the the dynamics she brings out so well. It's like, yeah, no, it won't be. That's the point in a way, unless you really like, I mean, maybe the, the other thing is that, um, I think holding men to higher moral standards and higher feminist standards has to be part of it. Um, you know, it can't, it can't just be on, um, but but there, I think it has to start, you know, pretty young. Um,
0: now, the thing that happens here, of course, in the latest uh, incarnation of this thing, is that it seems like o- women only of a certain class, who have the power and and, and some money and some connections, uh, the social, they have a social safety net, whether it's other women to come forward and make these claims against uh, many men. And I'm and I'm wondering. So you've got professional and artistic class women being able to do this, but how do how do we get down to where most women live, which is if you, you know if you're working in a fast food restaurant or you're working a regular job somewhere, uh, you may be subject to daily sexual harassment or demeaning uh, misogynistic attitudes. But you uh, really don't have the safety net. You don't have the social safety net. You don't have an economic safety net. You basically. In a situation where you cannot uh, complain because you're going to lose your job.
1: Yeah, no, and that's the crucial thing. Like, it's, I, I don't have the solutions um, because it's, you know, but it just seems to me a sort of crucial policy question going forward and, you know, question, you know, as activists that we have to think carefully and urgently about because it's no accident that Harvey Weinstein was the first to be really exposed as someone whose victims were um, for the most part white, um, Hollywood beautiful, independently wealthy, independent reputations, often beloved in certain ways as famous actresses. Um, This isn't to say um, to in any way underestimate or undermine um, the courage and the importance of what they did, but it's to say that those um, that testimony was something that they could afford and so many other women can't. And uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that I've and I know
0: one of the things with your you no know, one of the things with your book was uh, and I know you've heard it that because I've read some of the, the say, you don't offer any real solutions to this. Well, you know, I'm on your side. It's very, you know, your job is to analyze the problem or bring it out into the light. You can't provide policy solutions and how we're going to change society because it's going to take everybody.
1: Totally. I mean, I I really, I sort of found it funny in a way that people missed. I had a, there was a review in The Guardian that yesterday that I thought was particularly just obtuse in missing the point of my conclusion, which was, um, you know, I say at a certain moment I give up, and the title of the conclusion is "The Giving She," and the point of it was, you know, at that point, having written three hundred you know fifty odd pages, of really trying to be careful and precise, you know, and add what I could to an understanding of the problem. I didn't have anything left by way of solutions. That's not to say that there aren't any, you know, especially piecemeal and ones that have to be brainstormed on the ground by people with lots of different experiences. So the combination of, you know, I didn't have anything left to give because I was a used-up giving tree and I think solutions come from sort of grassroots collective brainstorming amongst women from very different social positions um, necessarily. Whereas I think, you know, I would never claim to illuminate all aspects of the problem of misogyny, but I think, you know, I could put my finger on some and then, you know, make explicit note of the fact that there was stuff I couldn't speak to and leave space for other theorists. Um, say, you know, when it came to trans misogyny, I didn't feel qualified to speak to that, but I could say here is something crucial we need theorists to, to you know, um, to add to an existing literature that's, you know, incredibly rich, but still in analytic philosophy, um, you know, fairly small with, you know, notable exceptions like Talia Mae Betcher and Rachel McKinnon, who are, you know, both doing amazing work, but we need more trans voices. Um, Anyway, point being, I just find this demand for solutions, um, yeah, it kind of, it's yet another demand imposed after like, and I do sort of feel like, well, criticize the book by all means within its its framework, but don't ask me to give yet more. If you're doing that, you've just missed the point of my critique.
0: Right. Well, you're, you're, Your point was to redefine a word and to uh, apply it and to name things with with that new written definition because once you name it, it becomes visible. And between your naming and what we're having right now with the Me Too campaign, it's definitely making things much more visible, harder to ignore, and uh, hopefully it will change even a little bit the way uh, men and women interact in the workplace.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think... I have a lot of faith in people when they're empowered and when the structures are such that they, um, you know, give people enough space both materially and socially to um, protest against certain kinds of abuses. Then I think, you know, offering concepts that can help crystallize those abuses or problems. Um, Yeah, I know at least in my case having certain concepts has really helped me just be, you know, a more politically active and sometimes self-assertive person. But yeah, it's the solution in a way is partly, um, offer tools, um, you know, in the long feminist tradition of offering tools that help crystallize social problems that otherwise remain either nameless or kind of foreboden to name. And then, yeah, I h- hope people do something with those tools, with a bit of optimism, actually, about the human spirit to sort of fight. If you feel like you are entitled to fight, then, yeah, I think, I think often people will.
0: Kate, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. And thank you, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.